What's the latest training product or method taking the sporting world by storm? On which problems should organisations be trying to get ahead of their competition now? And where and how is AI's growing influence currently being most felt? It's a nigh impossible task to stay at the forefront of every new development or emerging area. Personally, I'm fortunate enough to be exposed to a lot of different sports across a variety of geographical regions. And throughout this year, the topics I'm going to cover on today's show have popped up time and time again. So join me on this episode as I fly solo and provide some musings and observations on seven of the most common themes I've seen and heard in sport in 2022. Hello and welcome to One Track Mind, a podcast about the real issues, forces and innovations shaping the future of sport. I'm your host, Sam Robertson. On today's episode, I'm providing some observations on what I've seen in sport throughout 2022, as well as what might lie ahead in 2023 and beyond. Over the next 30 minutes or so, I'm going to cover seven topics covering just about every aspect of sport, ranging from the performance realm through to sports social impact. As always, we'd love to hear your thoughts on any of these topics, whether it's via social media or reaching out directly. So, with that out of the way, let's get on with the show. Topic 1, learning. The next competitive advantage. Just about every team sport I interact with presently is trying to improve the learning rates of their athletes. And by this I don't just mean adopting the best methods or creating the best environments to help athletes learn, which of course are both big questions in their own right. We continue to see a lot of resources put into coach education, schedule optimization and facility design, all with the intention of improving this area. But what I also mean is finding valid ways by which we can really determine that an athlete will retain any learning that they acquire, particularly without the need for continual reinforcement. For some sports, this is particularly crucial when practice or learning opportunities become very scant due to congested competition schedules or heavy travel periods. And perhaps even more importantly, the holy grail. How can we ensure that learning is actually transferred into competition, ultimately leading to an improved performance? Of course, this has been a primary challenge of coaches and skill acquisition specialists for a long time, but progress has often been hampered by challenges such as a limited ability to replicate competition conditions in training, but also the difficulty in directly connecting a performance improvement in an athlete due to a specific learning intervention. So why is learning such an attractive area right now for organizations? Well, collectively, the body of research is certainly not as saturated as many other performance areas in sport. In fact, there is very little empirical evidence available on this topic at the elite level. So there is a growing perception that more can be done. We certainly haven't maxed out our gains, so to speak. Further, unlike physical preparation, which has become quite preoccupied in some sports with load monitoring and restricting the amount of training being undertaken, I'd be shocked if many people working in sport held the opinion that athletes were being challenged too much with respect to the learning or cognitive demands of training or practice. Perhaps another reason for this rise in popularity is the increasingly enhanced ability to measure the practice and competition environment in far greater detail mainly through new technologies such as wearable sensors and computer vision. Now this not only helps address some of the topics I've just raised, but also to measure the response of the athlete themselves, 
either to a certain manipulated stimuli or indeed the entire environment around them. And so we can actually determine how well a coach's interventions and drills are working in ways that we've not been able to do before. And yet we're still really just scratching the surface. If we can know more about how an athlete's movement, psychology and physiology can all be refined in response to certain parts of a competition environment, then this holds ramifications for how we might be able to optimize their performance state as well. Finally, whilst I think we all acknowledge that sports should be set up with the primary focus of improving the athlete, there are also clear gains to be made with coaches as well. Take a look at just about any sport and one can find many examples. Just take a look at the number of coaches losing their minds on the touchline when an umpire or referee decision goes against them. Sure, this is far from a new phenomenon, but we really have to ask when and why this behaviour became normalised especially when it clearly is of no benefit to anyone involved. What does this example set for everyone else inside and outside the organisation? Could they be using the opportunity to provide a response that could actually positively impact performance? Now, this is obviously just one example of many, but the point remains, as opportunities to improve learning continue to emerge, let's also not forget about staff and coaches. Topic number two, a matter of principle. Being clear on what you stand for and sticking to it sounds desirable and also probably something that is viewed as quite achievable for most sporting organisations. A greater focus on principle-based partnerships is now being largely driven by athletes who are increasingly being empowered with a greater voice. In informing decisions on who to work both with and not with, It's easier than ever before to obtain information and perhaps misinformation about the activities and conducts of potential partners and sponsors. As examples, recently we've seen a number of athletes speak out against the location of a certain major football event taking place this month. Here in Australia, we recently saw the cancellation of a lucrative sponsorship deal for a national sporting team after concerns were raised by athletes around the organisation's involvement in fossil fuels, as well as comments made in the past by the company founder. Another example saw a newly appointed CEO just last a single day in the top job before stepping down due to his personal views not being compatible with those espoused by the club. Whatever your opinion on each of the above situations, having a clear operational plan for the future requires some very thoughtful and very broad consideration by organisations. Sure, there are some issues that should be clear-cut for any organisation, racism, for example, and these should be easy to take a unified stand on. But other areas are grey, to say the least. On these, who gets to choose which partner or sponsor is acceptable and which is not? Owners? Management? Athletes or all of the above? In the event that values and principles are well established, how does one ensure that they are imprinted into the organisational DNA, whilst also remaining responsive to the changing social conditions that may lay ahead? It's a far-reaching problem that organisations need to get right or the fallout can be severe. It's really no longer an option to sit on the fence. On one hand, there is the possibility of alienating athletes and staff, whilst also running the risk of hypocrisy, particularly when all the information required to make a good decision is not always accessible. On the other hand, particularly for emerging sports, is the risk of turning down sorely needed investment. To paraphrase the Godfather, are there 
sometimes offers that are too good for a sport to refuse. Personally, I don't envy the leaders charged with navigating these decisions on behalf of their organisation. Topic 3. Death to Data Science What actually is data science? If we look at the definitions, it's little wonder that so many of us are confused. One definition talks about it as a practice of using modern tools and techniques to find unseen patterns in data, derive meaningful information and then make business decisions. Another at least acknowledges it as an interdisciplinary field which uses scientific methods, processes, algorithms and systems to extract insights from data and then apply this knowledge across a broad range of domains. Another still merely views it as a concept to unify statistics, data analysis and informatics amongst others. Of course, none of these definitions are really all that satisfactory from a practical perspective in sport though. Some of the terms used in the above definitions relate to vastly different skill sets, many of which some organisations are not actually at a stage of needing or at least being able to leverage yet. To think that a single person is highly skilled in all these areas and just as importantly will have the time to manage all of these processes is at best naive and at worst potentially detrimental to both the individual and their workplace. So it's perhaps little wonder that there is so much smoke and mirrors when it comes to the hiring process in data science. A quick perusal of the job boards shows the incredible current popularity though of the term. So when we see such jobs advertised, what are organisations really looking for? Are they wanting someone full stack or a generalist? Or are they merely trying to follow the competition and maybe don't fully understand what the term means? Or is it simply down to budget and merely trying to fit all of these tasks and responsibilities into a single position? One can't help but think there might be a lot of poor appointments being made, or at least some with very intangible KPIs. The other strange part in all this is that data science, as I've referred to it here, really doesn't exist as a discipline in sport. Traditional performance analysis, at least through Europe and Australasia, to this day still focuses largely on notational techniques and video analysis, and has its roots as a collaborative sports science discipline. Of course, we have statisticians who have been playing with sports data for decades and were at the forefront of the analytics boom in the US. More recently, computer scientists have seen the opportunity become involved in sport due to the increased size of data sets and a perceived need for machine learning to make sense of this data. And then we have troves of people who have entered the space from seemingly random fields, for example, neuroscience, engineering, and funnily enough, one that seems to emerge a lot, physics. But from an identity perspective, all of these different groups still tend to live separate lives. There are dedicated conferences and member groups for each. When bringing them together, often the differences are easier to focus on than the similarities. So whilst I'd like to see the term data science disappear, there is nonetheless considerable merit in these groups joining forces on some pursuits if not somehow trying to also retain their specific identity. After all, if you talk to the typical coach or GM, they may not be able to tell the difference between any of the roles I mentioned above. But the sooner we get to a point whereby the different components of data collection, processing, analysis and reporting are better defined and understood by key stakeholders, the sooner we get more recognition 
for the corresponding skill sets required, reduced duplication of effort, as well as better collaboration. Topic number four, sports tech startups, missing impact. It's never been easier to get started in sports tech. There's also never been more training and coaching opportunities on the business side of starting a company. So things should be going well, right? Well, economic climate aside, one of the biggest reasons companies seem to fail in sport is that company founders completely skip over obtaining a satisfactory answer to the simple question of why. Why does sport really need your product or service? And I really do mean need, not want or like. If an athlete or organization can live without it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you won't have success, but it does put you up against it from the word go. Elite sport is a very small market. Normally, pursuing such an environment is a no-go zone in the startup world. Professional sports organizations are also notorious for not wanting to spend money on equipment, and as a result, loss aversion tends to work better as a sales tactic rather than actually promoting a product's benefit. Now, I know that it's often hard for budding founders to have their finger on the pulse of the exact needs and pain points of sports, without access to multiple insider contacts. I've heard the stories of founders hitting roadblock after roadblock in gaining traction with performance directors or general managers and understand it can also be disheartening. But the good news is that increasingly there are people out there that can and will help. This help can come in the form of more than simple introductions and lead generation to actually ensuring they avoid going down a route that sport doesn't really need or simply isn't ready for. So as someone that's seen hundreds of pitches this year alone, I couldn't stress enough to any prospective founder to speak to the sports first and foremost before getting to even an early stage. It could give you the justification to kill the idea quickly, pivot, or even be the acceleration that you need to go from the ideation stage straight to formation. Topic 5. Human and Machine The fact is that we have very little information to guide how humans should best interact with technology. After all, tech as we know it has only really been with us for a short moment in our history. Consequently, answers to fundamental questions such as exactly when we should outsource tasks to computers or technology, or when to use data-driven model recommendations instead of our own expertise, is often hard to determine. Evidence of this conundrum is absolutely everywhere in sport, from virtual offside lines in football, to value generation models in team sports, to automated coding. But if we look a little closer, it's apparent that the key questions sports need to grapple with right now are less about whether a human or machine performs better on a certain task, and more whether they're actually ready to take advantage of any benefit the tech can bring, particularly from an organizational maturity perspective. For instance, just because a tech does outperform a human on a given task doesn't necessarily mean that it should be adopted. What would such a decision mean for how the workplace is structured? How well is the tech able to be integrated with current processes and infrastructure? And how does it change the skills required by staff? And perhaps even more importantly, what are the ethical implications? When it comes to matters of decision-making, fundamental questions such as the readiness for staff ego to be challenged 
and knowing which data-driven recommendations to actually trust need to be answered. Can these recommendations be used to supplement human decisions on their weak spots rather than replace them? And do we have harsher or maybe even unrealistic expectations on the tech in the event that something goes wrong? It's okay to not have all the answers to these right now, as the reality is, not many do. One of the best ways organizations are currently navigating the human-machine integration in decision-making is through mapping the expertise of their staff. For instance, building models to profile how staff behave in certain contexts based on data collected throughout this process. For example, which information do they weight most heavily? Where are their blind spots? And on which problems do they perform most strongly? This blending of data matched with intuition and expertise, for the moment at least, appears to be both a happy and beneficial medium in this rapidly changing space. But despite all of this, and for all the hype, it's worth remembering that any computer-based system, for the moment at least, can only use the data they're provided with. Topic 6. Life's better in 3D. What is three-dimensional human movement data? One definition is the tracking of the position in space of athletes, balls, officials or other objects, often done at around 25 times per second, which is now possible in a whole range of sports. With many of these optical or sensor-based technologies, no longer is the athlete simply represented as a single object. Many sports are now also reporting on the 3D movement of their individual joints or body segments. Unsurprisingly, this has led to investigations into how these segments coordinate over time to generate specific movements or techniques. Now, in and of itself, what I'm describing here is hardly new. Biomechanics has been collecting this type of data and running these types of analyses, albeit up until now, mostly in the laboratory, for decades. A notable exception to this is probably inertial measurement units, or IMUs, which have probably been somewhat underutilized, but that's a story for another day. So why is 3D human movement capture a hot topic right now? Well, really, it's due to all of the usual reasons that any tech goes from being underutilized to pervasive. The hardware has become less cumbersome and much more usable in the field. This is particularly because many systems now being used for this purpose are optical-based, meaning that nothing needs to be attached to the object being observed in order for it to be tracked. Developments in computing have also meant that this data is more able to be processed and analysed faster as well. And as a result, we're seeing a heap of use cases from quantified real-time technique analysis through to applications that I mentioned earlier, such as semi-automated offside detection systems in football and event detection based on features extracted from player locations and movements. Ultimately, this is probably a good thing for sport and may even open up new frontiers for performance. But two words of caution. First, on the quality of the data. Let's say that there is one system measuring an athlete as having run 1,000 metres in a training exercise and a second system records 1,050. Does that difference actually matter? Probably not, as the precision in which the data is being used doesn't necessitate it being better than that. But if we take something like using this data to automate an offside line in football, then all of a sudden each body segment needs to be tracked to an accuracy level of centimetres rather than metres. 
and of course it goes without saying it needs to be very reliable. But perhaps an equally important word of caution relates to the utility of this data. There has been a proliferation of companies purporting to hold the secret to the perfect technique based on models generated from this data. A lot of these offerings violate a number of motor learning principles and without going into detail here, in terms of helping athletes to improve their performance, quite frankly they just don't work. It's also yet another example of the industry's current preoccupation with prediction, often without considering the broader context and complexity of the problem. Without sounding like a broken record, it's also another advertisement as to the importance of multidisciplinary collaboration on such large, complex questions. But with this data becoming increasingly easy to get one's hands on, I expect this misuse problem to get worse before it gets better. Topic 7. Evidence-Based Practice. A Crisis of Reproducibility. The ability for scientific findings to be reproduced after publication doesn't sound like a sporting issue per se. But when we look a little closer, it actually has the potential to challenge many of the fundamentals of practice and athlete development that are currently held as sacrosanct. So what is the reproducibility crisis? Well, it relates to the ability of a researcher to duplicate the results of a prior study using the same materials as were used by the original investigator. So despite this having always been a concern around the scientific method, it's reached a crisis point of late for a few reasons. Perhaps the main reason for this is the tools we now use in science. Our analysis is better and faster, and we've mentioned already a few times on this episode how tech is cheaper and more usable in the field. All of this leads to there being more ways in which reproduction can go wrong, more options for study design, data collection, and ultimately, more likely, variation in findings. Academic systems themselves haven't helped either. Perverse incentives for staff and universities has led to more studies and papers being generated than ever before, and it's inevitable in this mad rush to constantly produce that general quality is reduced. So, for the sports practitioner, what does this mean? Well, that favourite paper you found to support your practice of treating injury, enhancing recovery, or even gaining muscle mass, well, in many cases that might have been based on evidence from a single study, maybe with participants that looked nothing like those you're working with. And perhaps that effect you thought was incontrovertible could actually be inconclusive, or worse still, completely wrong. If I asked listeners now whether we should ice after injury, I'd probably get a 50-50 response split down the middle. But most worrying of all is that in an era where pseudoscience and misinformation is running rampant, if we don't have faith in the scientific method, then we're on a slippery slope to simply relying on who markets themselves the best or who has the most flashy website, all things that we're already grappling with. Reaching a solution to the problem will be complex, particularly as universities become increasingly neoliberal in their pursuits. But a good place to start is probably with ensuring quality training of researchers and students. That's it for this week's episode. We hope you enjoyed the show. Join us next time for episode 44, where we'll be discussing creating safe sporting environments for junior participants. Until then... I'm Sam Robertson, and this has been One Track Mind.
One Track Mind is brought to you by Track and Victoria University. If you care about sport and its future as much as we do, please support us by subscribing, leaving a review on iTunes, or wherever you listen, and recommending the show to a friend. It only takes a minute, but it really makes a difference. If you want more where this came from, follow us on Twitter or LinkedIn at TrackVU or Instagram at track.vu. Thanks for listening to One Track Mind. See you next time.